Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 28th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm here in Chicago. Just recorded a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Maybe you're joining us because you listened to that show. So let me tell you what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk a little bit. I'm going to talk about the Bundys. The Bundys, that fun-loving band of scallywags and jokesters, were found not guilty in their trial of all the charges of occupying federal land. It's like Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street's still there, right? The Myler National Wildlife Refuge is still there. Fish is there. Wildlife's there. So really, what was wrong? Can you even show that there was an occupation? The Oregon militia took over six weeks. They toted guns. Somehow, our fish and wildlife employees were put off by the fact that these gun-toting militia members were cooking soup in their lobby. That is the employee's problem, the jury said today. You know what? I'm thinking I might set up shop in my local DMV on Staten Island to, uh, to protest the fact that I can't turn right on red in New York City, even on Staten Island, which if you've been there, it's like New Jersey. You got to be able to turn right on red. So I'll bring my guns. I'll bring my soup, maybe sympathetic or I'm going to say possibly sarcastic members of the public will send me sex toys. That's what happened with the Bundys. But I don't see a jury convicting me. There are a couple problems with my plan. One, I don't have that Oregon jury to see my side of things. And two, I would have to live in the DMV on Staten Island. One member of the militia was actually killed, if you remember, in a shootout with federal authorities. I guess he didn't think the jury would let him off. Honestly, I sided with the guy, the dead militia guy, who'd rather get in a shootout with authorities than be taken alive. I thought he had a clear understanding of what the law would bring. I thought that the members of the militia who pleaded guilty We're doing the prudent thing. Egg on my face. I guess in the end, no one understands the workings of the courts and the workings of the government better than these rabid anti-government protesters, which is great that they know all this because the ringleaders have been remanded into custody. They face trial in Nevada on similar charges. I personally can't wait till they get to Staten Island. On the show today, welcome, as I said, if you heard Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I would like you to check out the gist. We are going to air an interview that I did with John Hickenlooper, the governor of Colorado. And I'll also give you a taste of my spiel. It's five to seven minutes of, well, whatever strikes me that day, I'm going to throw one of those from the vault your way. 
And at the end of this whole thing, it's a bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners to subscribe to Slate Plus for free. You get extra gist segments. Go to slateplus.com slash gist. And today, in my Slate Plus segment, what I call a not bat, where we just comment on things in the world. I'm joined by Mo Rocca. We talk about yogurt. But now, the governor of the Rocky Mountain State on the advisability of getting Rocky Mountain high. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. John Wright Hickenlooper Jr., luckily for the governor of Colorado, his full name sounds even funnier when you're high. Now, we just met, but I knew that he would laugh at that because of a few details in his new memoir, which is called The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. The first thing is that he forefronts the beer, which I thought was a good choice. The second thing is that in the book, he tells a story of one time he's feeling a little sorry for his mom. She's an empty nester. She's a widow. He says, well, I've got to go see a movie. Why don't you come along, mom? And no, no, no. I does. asked her if she wanted to come along. She said she wanted to come along. And, then, and the name of that movie was? Well, that was Deep Throat. It was deep throat. But we didn't know what X-movies were. It was the very first X-movie, and we thought it was just maybe a little bit blue, a little bit off color. Right. Well, it was a lot of bit blue, but she stuck with it because she has a soul of an artist. Well, she's very frugal. She sewed all her own clothes, and she she figured if we'd pay, I said, shouldn't Mm -hmm. we leave in the first first raunchy scene? She she goes, no, no, it's okay. (laughs) So this idea of you, did you go with your brother to that movie? No, an old friend of mine, Jed Rulon Miller, who uh, I I came home, and we hadn't seen each other. So we agreed to go see what an X movie looked like. We were kind of excited. And then I got home and saw my mom had cooked this big meal, and I felt awful telling her like you know an hour later – Food's gone. I, we're going to go see a movie. So I just said, I've got to go, and you, I'm sure you don't want to go. And she go, oh, no, I'd like to go. I said, well, it's an X movie. No, no, I'd like to go. Now, if young we should note this, that if young people, if their minds are being blown by, A, the governor of Colorado admitting to this, and B, the fact that he would take his mom to a movie, back then, this was the thing to do. This was a cool thing. Celebrities would be seen being photographed to show how cutting edge they were to go see Deep Throat and discuss it on Johnny Carson. What I'm saying is it's a different time. Anyway, I haven't even, <laughs> I haven't even uh, properly welcomed you, Governor Hickenlooper. Thanks for stopping by. Great to be here, Mike. I think you are the only governor who has a staff uh, member with the title Director of Marijuana Coordination? I believe I am. Okay. So here's what I want to ask you about that. And I, I, we want to get into other things too. It's probably the thing that your state is best known for outside of the state. It passed by popular referendum, correct? Yes. And you were against it? Yes. Okay. Have you backed off that to some extent, your original opposition? Yeah. I. Th- you know, I've said that the... When we first passed it, I mean, no one wants to be in conflict with federal law. Right. No one wants to have to build a whole regulatory framework from scratch. I mean, these are daunting challenges. But, you know, the feds are allowing, to, allowing us to be this laboratory of democracy and see how we do. And uh, the, the regulatory framework, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be improved, but it's working. 
I'm not ready to say, you know, I, I think it's going to succeed. I'm all for it. Other governors should do it. I, I still tell other governors, let's wait a year or wait mm-hmm. two more years. Let's see if there are unintended consequences. But I'm, I'm much more optimistic than I was. Okay. So that tells me a few things. One, we should note that you have a science background. You're a geologist. So it impresses me that you didn't prejudge this, that you let the experiment play, play out, which is good science in a way. Good social science in your well, case. Well, it's also good politics. You know, mm-hmm. if, if your voters, even if, if you oppose something, if they pass it 55-45, you've got a pretty serious obligation to get out there and, and, and at least try to see if you can implement it. Let me ask you another question about marijuana and your background, my life in beer and politics. Do you think as a beer guy, did that give you – I guess you could argue that it could have given you insight in that we had prohibition in this country. Maybe you could make the analogy that in the next hundred years, we'll, we'll look at marijuana like the Puritans looked at beer. Or maybe it gave you another kind of insight. You know the value of beer socially. You know the value of beer just in terms of taste. And then you look at marijuana, another controlled substance, but you know it's basically only used to get high. I'm sure someone who writes a blog will tell me differently, but that's why people use it. So did your perspective and your background inform your opinion of uh, marijuana. Yeah, I think it, and the fact I smoked marijuana when I was young, you know, yes. and, and had those youthful indiscretions as we say. You know, I look at it on a on that larger scale and the fact that Puritans didn't hate beer, right? For them mm-hmm. it was when you had so much bad drinking water, it was a way you could drink something and know that it wasn't going to be polluted, and make you sick. Marijuana is a little different, but it's fair to say that if we're right, if the, if this regulatory framework holds, we're very worried about still kids. There are more kids going to start taking it. Every you know brain scientist I talk to, the high THC, 10 times like when I was a kid, when teenagers' brains are growing very rapidly, which they do all the way up to the age of 23, 22, 23, 24, when their brains are growing rapidly, the high THC marijuana has the potential, the probability of interrupting that brain growth for a moment and actually – diminishing some of their long-term memory, which over a period of time, frequent uses could really reduce your IQ by several points. Kids don't realize that. And and that's one of the things we're worried about. We want to make sure that we're not kind of making it okay for kids to smoke pot. Right. Beer, by the way, or alcohol isn't great for young brains either. No, but it doesn't hurt them like this. I haven't seen any study that says if you end up drinking three beers, that that you're going to permanently reduce your your long-term memory. That's true, but I haven't seen the studies that show in utero marijuana hurts. I mean, actually smoking anything hurts, but I have, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome has been much more documented. That's high levels of alcohol. That that fetal alcohol syndrome comes from people over-imbibing frequently during their, their pregnancy. You know, to be apples to apples, you know, it's a question of whether that with teenagers who think they're they think they're going to live forever indestructible if they think that they can go ahead and do this on a regular basis and it's going to be okay which so far we haven't seen that we saw we see a little rise but not mm-hmm. a spike like we we were worried about and we we're also i mean if we're successful in driving drug dealers you know marijuana dealers out of the market so yeah. instead of having they can maybe sell heroin and crack and you know meth or whatever and marijuana take the marijuana out of that, you would assume that you're going to have much less, much fewer drug dealers. Drug dealers don't care who they sell to. So if we diminish the number of drug dealers, we're probably making it harder for teenagers to get pot, which by all measures, you know, five years ago before this experiment began, I mean, and it is, it's a social experiment. But before that began, kids could get, almost any kid could get marijuana because there are drug dealers in pretty much every neighborhood. Right. Have you seen a diminution in drug dealing overall in your state? 
it's hard to measure because we don't have statistics on how many corners we have drug yes. dealers. And in the census, almost no one fills out drug dealer. They rarely, <laughs> rarely. Uh, yeah. only, the, only the brave. Yeah. But we have anecdotal. There's a, a guy who owns a day labor company and, and people come in and work for a day. Usually they're recovering alcoholics or, or addicts. And they go out and work a day. They come back. They get cash. They leave. Usually he said he always had one or two drug dealers around trying to convince them to, to part with their money. He says for the last year, year and a half, he hasn't seen any drug dealers around. And that's, you know, anecdotally, that's a good sign. Now, what about this idea of funding the schools through marijuana? Anything, any syntax or any controversial program like the lottery or like Governor Christie in New Jersey wanted legalized gambling? You know, one way to sell it is to to always say, and the first however much money will go to schools. I mean, if schools, firehouses too, but usually schools are a priority, shouldn't they just be a priority? Not married to this, you know, controversial way of getting money? I couldn't agree more. I mean, it it creates a serious conflict of interest so that your public officials are going to be sitting there. On one hand, they know they need more money for schools. Yep. And on the other hand, are they in a position now where their self-interest is to try covertly or, or openly that they should try and market the you know more sales of marijuana? This has actually happened with sin taxes and cigarettes in some places. Sure. Like as cigarette smoking goes down, people are like, oh, we need the money. Or, and gambling. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody – most of us think, all right, gambling – it's not government's job to regulate it and, and, and lock people up because they gamble occasionally. But we know that gambling is not good for people. You walk through a, most casinos, if you're down in the slots, you see people sitting there intensely playing these slot machines. They don't look joyful or happy. They're intense. They're hoping they win. They, they're mm-hmm. in a different place. Not, I mean, there are lots of exceptions. Yeah. But we don't want to encourage it and we don't want to have government in a position where it's getting – it has a self-interest to encourage more gambling. But that's what we do every time we legalize all these these casinos. Am I hearing that Colorado might follow the example of Bhutan and be the first state to gauge gross happiness within the state? <laughs> I like that as a criteria for government policy. You know, uh, we're not. Uh, <laughs> but but I do – I think what Bhutan d- does is very interesting and I think it, it should be something that government measures, right? I mean – is our job to get people the most money they could possibly have or is our job to you know, solve problems? In a funny way, quality of life starts with a good job. So we spend the, – the, our first priority is trying to make sure we have enough jobs and we're growing jobs and the people can, can work if they want to. Uh, after that, then you've got you know, education, you've got healthcare, you've got the normal waterfall of public services that are all well and good. But somewhere in there is joy, yeah, right? That, that, that it should matter to us elected officials whether – whether people are happy. Life, liberty, happy. and what's the third one? The pursuit of it's happiness. It's going to be property, but they change it to pursuit well, of happiness. Well, but and they, it is interesting that it's the pursuit of happiness. It's yes. not happiness. We can't guarantee happiness. Right, exactly. Thank God they it, didn't put that in there. Is Colorado a purple state? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think we are. It's funny. Colorado is almost exactly one-third Republican, yeah. one-third Democrat, and one-third unaffiliated, which is a, a powerful thing to remember in terms of a purple state to have that many people in the middle really does kind of set us apart. So in terms of prospects for 20 – I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you presidential politics and local or everything else. But in 2016, it's so hard to know what Trump will mean. But you know, what's the case that the Democrats are going to win Colorado? I think in the end of the, the – Coloradans are pragmatic and they generally are pretty pro-business. And I think that, that you know, Donald Trump, you know, he's, he's so kind of loose on here's what I'm going to do. No, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Business wants predictability. Yes. It, desperately. It's, it, it's why all of a sudden capital expenditures six months before every presidential election go way down because people – that uncertainty makes people cautious. Well, if you have somebody who's the head of the whole country who is unpredictable by nature – 
it's going to make it difficult for business. I think I think that's going to favor Hillary. That that, that kind of the bully and the push push pull thing is going to be less attractive. This weekend, Trump was speaking to the NRA, and he had a tete-a-tete with uh, Hillary Clinton about guns. Now, during your tenure, the horrible shootings at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Aurora, and yet from the outside, it's been reported that a championing of a gun ban or a partial gun ban or some gun regulations really hurt Democrats elected to the state house. Is that true? Is there a right way to talk about guns? What has your experience with uh, trying to pass some gun regulation and the blowback from that taught you? Well, it depends on what you're what you're looking at. I think certain regulations are like universal background checks. I still can't believe we can't do that on a national level. When we passed our gun legislation in 2013, we went back and checked for 2012. We got to roughly half the gun purchases and, and asked for background checks to, for half the purchases. And we found just in Colorado, right, 5 million people in just in one year, uh, 38 people convicted of homicide who tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. I mean, when people hear those numbers, they say, of course, it takes mm-hmm. 10 minutes. It costs 10 bucks and it only costs you when you're buying the gun. That's cheap insurance to make sure we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, yeah. right? When you see that 38 people were convicted of homicide and tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. It makes it hard to oppose universal background checks. Yes, it does. But what about open carry? Now, this is popular with the people of Colorado, and yet there have been problems with it. I was reading about a case where walking a man was with, I think, a long rifle walking down the street, gets called into the police. He's seeming erratic. The police in, was it in Denver? Colorado Springs. Yeah, Colorado Springs said, we can't do anything to intervene. He winds up killing a few people. What do you do about open carry? Well, I think, again, you got to get the facts. Some people... With it, whether to open carry or not, appear to be menacing. And in certain places, you shouldn't have an open carry, d- depending on you know certain universities, schools, obviously. My opinion, crazy to have teenagers with guns in schools, right? Yeah. And so what about open carry elsewhere? In general, what's your stance yeah, on Generally, it? I don't like it. But you know, being a Coloradan, I'm very slow to say I'm going to get rid of it because that, that Second Amendment is almost – it's just part of that outdoor, rustic frontier heritage – it is more than just a right. It's, it's part of who they are. Okay. And this l- literally is my last question. I like an IPA. I like a double IPA. <laughs> I think it's gotten crazy with the amount of hops and the triple IPAs. I don't know if I have an upper threshold for international bitterness units, but how bitter do you <laughs> like your beer? Well, I love being interviewed by somebody who wants to talk about bitterness units. Um, <laughs> well, we talked about politics. That's all about bitterness units. <laughs> so I'm one of those guys that in the winter, yeah. I, I, it's not just darker beers like porter and stouts. I like more more hops in the winter. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. In the summer, I want to have a, a, I don't, Pilsner, uh, exactly. Right? I don't yes. want to have all those hops. So I don't know if it's a straight line or whether there's a cliff in there. I think usually about the end of March, I just had <laughs> enough of the triple IPAs or even the double IPAs. Um, but there is you know, something to be said for strong hopping. And I actually brought you a gift. I have, you know, the book is The Opposite of Woe, right? Yes. My Life in Beer and Politics. But we brought you a bottle of the opposite of Woe, which is not for sale. Uh-huh. You can't get it. But my old partner brewed it as a kind of a celebratory beer for the release of the book. So we brought you a special gift with, Thank a, you. with a Hickenlooper label that's the opposite of Woe. Do you know the IBUs on that one? I don't know, but it's pretty high. It's not a, it's it's not a not- double IPA, but it's close. All right. The Opposite of Woe is the name of the book and almost the name of the beer, <laughs> My Life in Beer and Politics, John Hickenlooper. Thank you so much, Governor. Mike, it was my pleasure.
And now the spiel. Donald Trump is saying the election is going to be rigged because he knows in the key moments before the final decisions are made, Donald Trump did a walkthrough in the election's dressing room while it was changing before the all-important bathing suit competition, and he has seen some things that can't be unseen. Now, the governor of Maine, Paul LePage, who has all the tact of Trump without glowing testimonials from Scott Bayo, also says of his own state, which elected him twice, you can't trust him. The Democratic Party insists on not having IDs. And will people from the cemetery be voting? Yes, all around the country. Uh, the media and and the Democratic Party want everybody to vote whether they're citizens or not. Now, the Secretary of State in Maine, Matthew Dunlap, says that voter fraud is extremely rare. They have come across two attempts in the last 10 years, and in both cases, the attempts were thwarted. But Dunlap's a Democrat. Of course he's going to say that. You have to trust the governor, the duly elected governor, the man withstanding to say, I don't think the elections in the state of Maine or in the United States are legitimate. Oh, well, that was Paul LePage, the man who lives in the governor's mansion, but maybe shouldn't. LePage's rages aside, there is little credibility to these wild claims of vote rigging. Though, let's be fair, stolen elections have long been a specter raised by the left. I've seen Bill Moyer's specials on it. I've listened to Democracy Now! segments on it. I've read the Nation magazine writing about it. Which is to say our voting system is old. It doesn't have a great paper trail. Donald Trump is fomenting, let us say, disquiet. He is really embodying Jeb Bush's idea that he is the chaos candidate. But I detect an extra disquiet among those who will not stay quiet. In fact, among those who would be out of a job if they were quiet, the news media seems to me to be saying that this, this talk of vote rigging, is fundamentally different from all the other terrible Trump talk because this threatens the very foundations of democracy. But what, birtherism didn't do that? That cast the presidency as illegitimate? And that wasn't a thing that could happen in the future. That was a lie about a thing that didn't happen in the past. Is election rigging more a thing to bemoan and be fearful of than Trump's stated desire to jail his rival? I think fueling the fear, fueling many fundamental fears, is that it's unknown. And into the chasm of the unknown, I have noticed, has stepped one particular voter, a very useful voter. His name is Steve Webb. He's from Fairfield, Ohio. Steve Webb was quoted in the Boston Globe saying, Trump said to watch your precincts. I'm going to for sure. I'll look for, well, it's called racial profiling. Mexican, Syrians, people who can't speak American. I'm going to go right up behind them. I'm going to do everything legally. I want to see if they're accountable. I'm not going to do anything illegal. I'm going to make them a little bit nervous. Webb was mentioned on CNN State of the Union, and his quote made it into a lot of the cable shows and most of the election podcasts I listen to. Here's 538 Keeping It 1600 and Fusion TV. Quote, I'll look for, well, it's called racial profiling. I'll look for Mexicans, Syrians, people who can't speak American. The official language of a country is, of course, American. I want to see if they are accountable. I'm not going to do anything illegal. I'm going to make them a little bit nervous. I think of Steve Webb and his call to follow the precepts of the American language and presumably American way of life as a scary outlier. Steve Webb's a little like the Willie Horton of this campaign. Remember, Willie Horton did do horrible things during his furlough. And Steve Webb, who we called, he hasn't called back, is certainly laying out an election day that could make a Southern Ohio poll goer quite nervous. 
But does this mean widespread intimidation? Does this mean clashes at the ballot box? Does this mean we should expect Trump's loose talk to translate into firm fists? It may. I can't say it won't. Maybe there will be some examples of voter intimidation here or there. Hey, maybe the firebombing of the Republican offices in Orange, North Carolina is already a part of this phenomenon from the other side. But I don't have much fear. Most polling places have a cop stationed there, and most cops even members of the Trump-endorsing fraternal order of police, will not allow much nervous making to go on in the name of accountability verification. It's definitely human nature to perceive a threat, and when you hear a threat, to react to it. But I say we should treat Steve Webb-type statements like he was an internet troll. Or maybe better, let's think of a terrorist. We can't discount the terrorists are up to mayhem, but we do give them too much power if we quake in fear, i.e. if we allow them to terrorize us. Every once in a while, there's an eruption from a Trump supporter, or in the case of Corey Lewandowski, a Trump campaign manager, and we do spend a fair amount of time fretting about how ugly and beyond the norms it all is. And it is beyond the norms. But the threat to democracy is not that a few Trump supporters will try to commit acts of violence. The threat is that many of them will unite to elect a candidate in an unrigged election. And it looks like, at least on the presidential level, that is not going to happen. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson, who knocked over a 7-Eleven but was found not guilty because who doesn't like Slurpees? Chris Berube also produced the gist. He knocked over a Tim Hortons, also not guilty because the donuts are nice. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, pied British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson in the face. Not guilty. Pies are funny. Boris Johnson's funny. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's not guilty of absconding with corporate funds. Is it because he never actually did abscond with corporate funds? Or just because he absconded with panache? The gist. You know, if caring too much is a crime, then I'm guilty. But... If you know me and my levels of attention to detail, I'm clearly not guilty. Umpuru dapuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.